This is what the Word of God says in Matthew 2. Where you see the bold text, please read aloud with me. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who was born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose in the east and have come to worship him. Let's read. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. They quoted, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Let's read. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the mother Mary, uh, I'm sorry, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Let's read. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Route, route, some of you, all right. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to, we're talking about Herod today. For Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Let's read. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. And now's what we do almost every week in 2023. Now is when we turn back to the prophet Jeremiah. It says, then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. Amen. You may be seated. A few weeks ago, after the time changed and it began to get darker earlier, uh, one evening I had to go run some errands and I told Candace, hey, I got to go do this. Okay. I'm going to, Candace says, I'm going to go change the laundry over, get the dry uh, stuff out of the dryer, switch the washer over into the dryer. Okay. Okay. Our washer and dryer are in our basement. And uh, as she said this to me, uh, you know, okay, that's great. I walk out the back door of our house and I go to the driveway to get ready to drive down the road. And I see the lights turn on in different parts of the house and I see Candace through the basement window walk down the basement steps and walk into the laundry room. What dawned on me was that earlier that day I had been doing yard work and I was using our basement door and I left it unlocked. And so all of a sudden I had this epiphany that usually this door 24-7 is locked. 
but right now it's unlocked, and Candace is standing right next to it, switching the clothing from the washer to the dryer. And I thought, it's been a really long time since I gave Candace a good scare. And so I went down the basement steps, pitch black darkness outside, and I, I just get crouched down, I get real close to the door, and I turn the handle just slowly and silently, and she is in the zone, she's doing the lawn, you know, folding stuff out, and um, I just pop the door open, and in one motion, I just say, hey, what are you doing? And uh, she immediately just goes into the fetal position and lays on the floor um, in front of our washer and dryer, and she's crying for a minute. And uh, isn't that terrible? Isn't that awful? <laughs> but you know what? You have to keep your marriage exciting. <laughs> and if it's just straight predictable, then it's boring, and you got to excite each other. I popped in the door. I said, hey, what are you doing? And Candace's response, you know, there's flight, f flight, fight, freeze. Hers is fetal, and she just lays right down on the carpet. So I just, it's okay. It's, I got to go run an errand. So I left. So I'm waiting on her to get me back because out of the two of us, I'm the more jumpy one, and um, I know it's going to be rough when it comes. Uh, I want to talk to you today about fear and how Jesus is far greater than our fears. Jesus would never do that to us. Um, but Jesus is far greater than our fears. In this story, we read about a man called Herod the Great. In fact, throughout the New Testament, you see Herod popping up several times, but it's not always the same Herod. There are three Herods in the New Testament. It's not all the same guy. We read later about Herod's son, Herod Antipas. He was the one who ordered John the Baptist's head, uh, beheading. Um, he was the one who Jesus stood on trial before in Jerusalem, and he had the opportunity to preserve Jesus' life. He only ruled one-third of the kingdom of his father, Herod the Great. Um, and then Herod's grandson, Herod the Great's grandson, the son of Herod Antipas, was Herod Agrippa. He was the one who killed James, the, the leader of the early church, and threw Peter in prison. Remember when Peter was in jail, and then uh, the angel shows up, lets him out of prison? Herod Agrippa threw him in prison. So he was the, the king during that time. He was struck down by God in Acts 12 due to his pride. He was praised. He was called God. He didn't correct anybody. And in that moment, um, his life ended. And uh, he also had a small ruling state. It wasn't like Herod the Great's. But I want today, I want to focus in on this key figure in the nativity story, key figure in Jesus' early life, Herod the Great. This man uh, ruled over all nine regions of Israel, all nine regions of Judea. Later on, it, it's broken down in different tetrarchs, different provincial rulers oversee certain areas. This man oversaw the biggest kingdom of Israel, the largest it had been since King Solomon. Herod the Great had a lot of uh, oversight and a lot of responsibility. He was obsessed with legacy. He was obsessed with greatness. Um, he was friends with Mark Antony. He was friends with Caesar Augustus. And he liked to build magnificent buildings. He wanted his name to live on. He wanted there to be uh, monuments that people would associate with him, like the pyramids of Egypt. He wanted them to be, there to be things that lived on long after him so that people would always remember his greatness. Here are a couple of the things Herod the Great built. He built the second temple, Solomon's temple. 
was destroyed in 580 by the Babylonians. And Herod uh, rebuilt, the rebuilding had been going on for a long time, but Herod came, he doubled the size of the Temple Mount, and he added big walls and big gates, big facades that were beautiful, and he made that uh, religious site uh, something that people would behold every time they came to Jerusalem. Um, Herod himself was Jewish. A generation before him had converted to Judaism. And so he did that. He built the second temple. Then he built the port of Caesarea, this tiny little fishing village. He turned it into this massive uh, port of trade with Rome. And it's still there today. You can go see the ruins of the port of Caesarea, massive place. At the port of Caesarea, he built a huge palace, and that palace had an infinity pool right on the Mediterranean Sea. This guy liked to build some nice stuff. He built a racing ground for his horses in Caesarea that you can still go and visit today. Well, after that, he built something that many of you have visited if you've been to the Holy Land. He built the fortress at Masada. Masada was already there, this massive cliff face. He developed a fortress there. Um, in fact, when he developed it, it was more of a palace that the Romans turned in to a fortress. Uh, but it was on the top of a cliff. There were only two ways in and out. He could go and hide in this fortress palace for two years without having to leave for food and water. Two years. He uh, was a little bit paranoid. He wanted to be able to uh, live no matter who was coming against him. Um, and in the back corner of this palace, there is another in-ground pool. He had an indoor in-ground pool. Herod liked to relax. I like that Herod built those things. Um, here's something that I wanna share with you today that you might not know that Herod built, Herod the Great. There is a palace called the Herodium. Some people call it the Herodion. And it's just outside of Bethlehem. It's about five kilometers away. And what he did was on top of a mountain, really it was a massive hill, he built another hill. So he goes on top of a hill, builds another hill, and then on top of that hill, builds this great palace. This was his summer palace for his wife and children to go to when it was hot outside. At the bottom, there was a massive pool. You can see uh, this is what it would have looked like in Jesus' day. At the bottom, there's this magnificent, beautiful pool. Um, and this is what it looks like today on the bottom part of the screen. The remains are still there. They continue to excavate it. Um, and it's crazy to think that in the shadow of this great palace was a stable, or realistically uh, an outcropping, a cave uh, for animals where a manger laid and the real king of the Jews was laid in in the shadow of this great palace. In fact, if you look, uh, this is to modern day Bethlehem, and if you look from Bethlehem towards the Herodium, this is what you see. Jesus, uh, as he was born, and Joseph and Mary were literally having this miraculous, all-time-changing, hinging, legacy moment where the Savior of the world comes incarnate in the shadow of the palace of somebody else who was calling himself great at the time, Herod the Great. Herod's also remembered today for uh, not just building magnificent buildings, but taxing people heavily, trying to get more and more and more. 
out of the people that he was overseeing, out of those he was responsible for to make a greater name for himself. Not only was he known for magnificent buildings and magnificent taxes, but he was also known for his control and paranoia. He was so jealous and cruel that when he feared his wife might take some of his power away or come against him, he put his wife to death. He had five sons, and when he feared two of his sons might come against him and try to overthrow him, he put two of his sons to death. But after Herod passes away, he divides Judea into three portions, and his three remaining sons each get a piece. And most notably, he was uh, paranoid, jealous, and cruel, but most notably, he tried to kill Jesus, the baby born to be king of the Jews. I just want to give you three thoughts today about fear. Herod the Great lived in fear. He lived in fear that he wouldn't accomplish the greatness that he wanted, the dream he had in his heart for his legacy that somehow would validate him. He lived in fear that he wouldn't accomplish it. He lived in fear that someone would take his greatness away from him. Here are three thoughts about fear today. Fear pollutes the atmosphere. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. The Bible tells us that the just will live by faith, not by fear. It's the assurance that in reality, we will have what we hope for in Jesus Christ. Some translations say it is the assurance, it is the reality. It's the substance of what we hope for. We're called to live by faith, taking hold of all that we have in Christ. Not living by sight, not living by circumstances, but living, believing that we will have in reality all we hope for in Jesus Christ. Fear is the opposite. It's not the substance of what we hope for, it's the substance of things lost or taken. Fear is the substance that I'm going to lose what I have. Things will be taken from me. Herod's kingdom was a climate of fear. A climate of faith is wonderful. It produces participation because we believe something good is coming. We believe we have a good father and we all want to be a part of that. We trust and we believe in each other. We're willing to depend on each other. Creativity happens in a culture of faith because we're not afraid of failing. The just live by faith. Herod was an insecure leader. He was a bully with impunity. His fear injected and infected the whole city. In a moment where the city of God should be rejoicing, it should be a faith-driven response to the coming Messiah, an atmosphere of invitation, expectation, rejoicing. Instead, the culture is hijacked. In the culture of Jerusalem becomes fear-driven rather than faith-driven. The Messiah was born to save our souls and establish his perfect kingdom, but instead people are thinking, what will Herod say? What will Herod do? How's Herod going to react? Who cares? It's so easy to uh, live just like the Jewish people were living in Jerusalem at this time. We read it earlier. It said, Herod was greatly disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. Whenever the culture is filled with Christmas fear rather than Christmas cheer, it's easy to react to the culture rather than respond to God. Things happen, circumstances happen, and a lot of times we get uh, caught in that lane of fear of the responses of people that have no faith rather than responding to the glory and wonder of who Jesus is. This is what's happening 
in Matthew chapter two, <clears throat> when uh, we read this word, that Herod was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. It's the Greek word terasso. It means to upset, to put into motion what should be still, to cause inner perplexity and emotional agitation. It's the opposite of when Jesus calms the storms. It's the opposite of when Jesus brings peace beyond understanding in our lives. Rather, something should have been still, but it was agitated and perplexed. You may be there today. In your life, you might have great emotional perplexity and inner agitation. Things are facing you. Problems are facing you. Your family situation is broken. You're, you're trying to find a solution. You're pushing for peace but there's so much up against you. There's Herods all around you. The culture maybe in your home has been hijacked. The culture of your workplace has been hijacked. I wanna remind you today that you are a culture setter. As a person of faith, being faith-driven, you're not there to react and to respond uh, to the broken paranoia and fear around you, to, to take on the insecurities of people who stand opposed to God, but you're there to exalt God and glorify him in all things. You are there to worship Jesus in all situations. You're the chief culture setter of your heart, of your household, of your relationships, and of our church. Your faith creates an atmosphere. The spiritual leaders of Herod's day were also agitated. I think it's uh, in reaction to what we read earlier when Herod called them out and said, hey, where is the Messiah supposed to show up? They said, uh, we read it earlier, they said, you, O Bethlehem in Judea, are by no means the least among your brothers. Why? Because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd. And so Herod hears that, and you, you hear that contrast language. Herod hears it through his insecurity that the true ruler is coming. And Herod's there saying, I'm the king of the Jews. I'm the truest ruler. But no, the word of God says the true ruler is coming. But I think the way the priests and the scribes, the lawyers, the Jewish lawyers of the day, how they heard it was not that a true ruler is coming. They heard it as a true shepherd is coming because their job was to shepherd people into connection with God, to care for spiritual needs. So Herod heard a true ruler's coming and he got scared. The Jewish people heard a true shepherd is coming and they got scared. Someone's gonna take away their flock. Someone's gonna come in and displace their authority. We learn something from how Herod responds in this situation. He is a crafty political manipulator. Uh, we learn that fear is not always a surface expression, but rather an underneath motivation. He wasn't saying, oh my gosh, I'm freaking out. No, he said, hey, go find out where this Messiah has been born so I can worship him too. There's underneath motivations of fear sometimes. And, and on the outside, we might see that fear is in disguise. We might see um, things like, Insecurity, confusion, anxiety, shame, envy, annoyance, frustration, aggression, violence. But underneath it, it's like an iceberg, right? Underneath it, there's a fear of losing something. Remember, fear is the substance of things lost, not things hoped for. Losing acceptance from others, losing praise, losing peace, losing control. If you struggle with people-pleasing, 
you're really struggling with people fearing. You're fearing the reactions of people like the Jewish people were fearing Herod. You're not responding to the love of God. You're not responding to the truth of God. You're responding in fear towards other people. Fear fakes worship. You know, I I think we can all be discerning enough to realize when we read this story about Herod wanting to worship the Messiah, that there are people that can come into our lives and maybe they present themselves as a person of God. I believe in God. I wanna honor God. But if we, if we are just patient, we see what they are consistently demonstrating, which is not a heart that honors God. Can, can we just be real? There might be somebody that wants to date you that acts like a man of God or a woman of God on the surface. They have that, that Herod act down, but really they're opposed to God and there's a lot of fear in their heart and insecurity because of what Jesus represents. You need to wait and see if they have godly character. See if they're seeking his will. See if they've created a secret place to worship and give God glory. There's some people in church who are in a Godfather type of relationship with the Lord. Keep your friends close, keep your enemies closer. They're around the things of God, but they haven't surrendered their life to God. Church is more of a ritual or an activity for them. It's not connected to their spiritual formation and their ongoing surrendered life. So let's not pull the wool over our eyes and let's realize there are people that are walking in that Herod lane. Are they captivated by Jesus? Are they crazy about Jesus? Let me just pause here. Herod does something that true worshipers don't do. He says, you wise men, you go and you search for him. No. True worshipers have to go for themselves. You can't tell somebody, hey, you go to church today, you tell me what I missed. You go to growth group tonight, you tell me if there's anything good there, you let me know. Hey, you do devotions and then maybe distill it and if there's something you wanna say, let me know about it. You, hey, we really need to be praying about this thing. Can you pray about that for us? No, you can't have that secondhand faith. You can't have that secondhand walk, right? You have to be in relationship with the Lord. Um, So Herod, uh, He's created this culture, he's demanding, he's scheming, he's manipulating, he's hypocritical with his humility that I will go and bow down and worship. No, uh, that's not really what was in his heart. He is polluting the atmosphere with insecurity and pride. The second thought I have for you today, not only does fear pollute an atmosphere, but fear comes from competition. Your greatness is no match for God's glory. It doesn't matter how great you are, how many skills you have, and how you've developed them. If you're living for your greatness, you're in a long journey of waiting for the tide to come in on your life and seeing your sandcastles washed away. Doesn't matter how many beautiful seashells are in there, how many little stick flags you've put in, you're in a long journey if you're living for your greatness to see God's glory wash it all away. Philippians 2, 3 says it like this, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. When your greatness is in competition with God's glory, Jesus is a threat. When you have a servant mindset that says it's all for the glory of God, I boast in nothing but the cross, it's countercultural. The USA has some of the brightest lights and biggest stages in the world. In the US, in our free market, you can make something out of yourself no matter what you come from. Greatness is up for grabs in America. 
Greatness is up for grabs. If you're a self-starter, hustler, you work harder, you're more creative, you're more productive, you're more efficient, you can have more greatness opportunity than 98% of the world in the US. And it is hard to live a life of self-denial in a culture of self-promotion. In a culture that is all about our greatness, it can be difficult to live for God's glory. It's very countercultural. It's interesting to me, the word for great in the Greek is mega. That's where we get the word mega. I don't know if you know that. Um, and today we have mega churches, right? Great, great churches. I have no problem with mega churches. I have no problem with mini churches. Small is not bad. The important thing is biblical faithfulness, biblical practice. Um, and the, the whole the whole point of it all is to magnify the glory of God as brightly as we can to as many people as we can. So if I'm living with a crown that comes from my own kingdom, I've given myself a crown. I've given myself a throne. Uh, it is a rival kingdom to the kingdom of God. And Jesus is a threat. But if my, if my crown comes from Jesus, then I have nothing to fear. Absolutely nothing to fear. I like how Psalm 27 says this. Um, you're familiar with this psalm. There's some lines in it that are just, they appear in all our worship songs. They're so good. David is singing to God and he's saying, uh, Lord, I trust in you. Of whom shall I be afraid? Lord, I trust in you. Whom should I fear? Who out there should I fear? Whose greatness should threaten me? I'm not scared. He said, if an army comes against me, if an army is besieging me, I won't be afraid. He's, he's really bold. This is like David's most confident, spiritually confident, faith-filled psalm. And then he says this, God, just one thing I seek, just one thing I ask, let me dwell in your house. Let me be with you. If I can be with you, God, I don't care about anything. I'm not worried about it. I'm not afraid. I'm living. Here's the thing. If you're sitting on your throne you're living in fear of anybody else that could come and take that throne. But if you're on your knees at Jesus's throne, you have nothing to fear because nothing can conquer him. He's the king. <laughs> Christmas cheer comes from being in awe of God. Christmas fear comes from being at odds with God. And that's what Herod experienced at the first Christmas. You cannot threaten someone who is already crucified. And that's why we have to live out that Galatians 2.20 that says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives within me. Vaingloriousness can get us thinking equality with God is something to be grasped. Like maybe I deserve a little worship too. Look at my strengths and my smarts. We start Nebuchadnezzaring ourselves and we get in front of the mirror and we say, oh, well, hmm. Instead of fixing our eyes, on Jesus. And this is the temptation that culture will throw at us time and time again, where we live in a culture of rich young rulers. It's not one Herod the Great out there in culture, but the enemy is tempting us all to be Herod the Great and live for our own personal ambition. And that can lead us into a timeshare throne share situation. And we, we want to share the throne with Jesus. Like, God, your glory is so great. Way to go. But also look at my greatness, God. Isn't this wonderful? And let's just share the throne together. That's not how it works. And if you, you get throne drunk, you'll do anything you can to stay on top. 
Herod devalued everything to what it could give him or what it could take away from him. How much taxes can I get out of these people? And what people might take it all away from me? I'm gonna put them to death and I'm gonna increase the tax rate, increase the tax rate, increase the tax rate. Everything became what it could give him or what it could take away from him. Second Samuel shows us how to be great and magnify God. See, God's not anti-greatness. He wants you to be great. He wants you to be high achieving. He wants you to take the resources that he's given you and steward them into a place of blessing and fruitfulness and abundance. But check out how David responds to greatness. Second Samuel 7, and I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word you have spoken concerning your servant and his house, and do as you have spoken, and your name will be magnified forever, saying, the Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. God says, David, I'm gonna make you great. David says, what? I don't deserve that. All I wanna do, God, is magnify you. All I wanna do is make your name great. I want you to prosper so that you can have some myrrh to give and some frankincense to give. You can have some gold to give, to be useful. Just like Jesus's family used those gifts, had those treasures so that they could go to Egypt and live as refugees in Egypt. Maybe a million Israelites were in Egypt during this time, waiting for Herod the Great to die. That's how bad it got. But but I wanna have something that I can give to Jesus that is useful for his kingdom, that glorifies him. Be all in on worshiping the glory of God, pursuing, bowing, and giving. The wise men, the magi, did what Herod should have done. God used, God used these magi to do what Herod wouldn't do. His responsibility, he abdicated it. He walked away from it and the magi stepped in. It's okay to be high achieving. It's okay to have greatness as long as your greatness is all about magnifying the Lord and not about your own throne. And that's what we're gonna hear at the end, right? We wanna hear well done, good and faithful servant. Not good and faithful prince, God's the king. No, not good and faithful tetrarch ruler, whatever. Good and faithful servant. That it was all for you, God. And we measure ourselves by different yardsticks when we're in Christ, right? Those old statistics don't matter. At the end, when you stand before the Lord, he's not gonna ask, did you retire debt-free? He's not gonna ask, did you rent or did you own? Did you see the Grand Canyon or not? Did any of your videos go viral? Did you graduate? Did you find romance? Did you reach the top? It doesn't matter because those statistics aren't our yardsticks anymore. It's all about being faithfulness. And you know what? It's okay to be faithful with small things. You need to be faithful with small things. But I think a a really humbling prayer that gets us out of Herod's lane, that's living um, out of fear and just wanting to be greater and greater and living by faith to magnify the Lord is God, I'll be as small as you want me to be. Small as you want, God, just let me be faithful. We can't, gloss over the pictures we saw earlier. Herod reached the top and the top wasn't enough. 
So he had to build a top on top of the top. Remember that hill we saw? Herod could have built a great, a, a great palace on top of that hill. But that hill wasn't tall enough for Herod. He wanted a pyramid. He wanted something you could see from miles and miles away, something that would stand the test of time and everybody would remember him for. So he reached the top and he wasn't satisfied. So he built a top on top of the top. What's gonna happen when you reach the top and you're not satisfied? Here's my fear. What if you only reach the middle and you think the top is the answer? It's unsatisfying. Look at Herod, he built a top on top of the top. Wasn't satisfied. If you have that personal burden of conquest, I just wanna see you set free from that tension of your own personal greatness, living for your own personal greatness, that that will validate you, that that will give you purpose and meaning and value. No, Jesus is welcoming you to his throne to sit at his feet. Say, God, I'll be as small as you want me to be. Third thought today is fear leaves no legacy. Something to live on beyond you, that was what Herod was all about. He just wanted to mark history. There were things in his life he did not want to lose control over, and he should have been the first one in line to give Jesus his gifts. Sometimes God places gifts under our umbrella. He places something in our backyard to nurture and to foster and empower, but we act like Herod. Rather than nurture it and foster it and empower it because God's given it to us to bless, we criticize it, we put it down, You may have heard this quote before that criticism is how the insecure person compliments themselves. God gives us these things and instead of loving them and faithfully caring for them, we abdicate our responsibility. We try to make ourselves great in spite of them. You are the primary nurturer of the spiritual gifts and the faith of your kids and your spouse. That's your job. God's called you to mentor other people and to be an encourager and to speak life and to build them up. Trinity's here to help you do that. Our pastors, we have mentors. We're here to help you do that. But nothing improves on its own. So that's why God's given you to people and given people to you to invest into them, to give them what they need. It's vital. Develop their potential, their creativity, their energy. Be extravagant with the people you love and cherish. Well, I don't wanna spoil them. You won't spoil them if you're pushing them to serve God effectively. If you push them towards their own greatness and their own kingdom and their own throne and their own crown, yeah, you're gonna spoil them. But if you make it all about Jesus and you give and you invest into them and you bless them to honor God, you won't spoil them. You're gonna help them. You're gonna craft them and shape them. If you're fear-driven, God will go around you. That's the story of Herod. He gave the Magi a dream. Don't go back to Herod. Go back to your country a different route. God will go around you. He will divinely intervene so that you have no part in the story of his glory. You know how Herod's remembered today? Yeah, there's, there's stones and there's dirt out there. You know how Herod's remembered today? He's remembered as the king whose watch Jesus was born on who instead of blessing this king, this promised Messiah, tried to kill him. He's remembered for his Christmas fear, not his Christmas cheer. With many in our culture today, living like Herod, opposing the work of God, 
How can God's church be built? Fear can't stop God's kingdom. Fear can't stop the church. Our choice is whether or not God is gonna use us or go around us. God's sovereign. We, we're afraid sometimes of God's will. So we act out of fear, we work against him. And, and it's so amazing what God does in this story. Herod acts, which actually propels God's will and work forward. Herod acts against God, but it actually accomplishes more of God's work because God's sovereign and he's that good. Prophecy had to be fulfilled that Jesus would go to Egypt. Herod is just pushing the family into God's will. Today, I want to remind you, you're a culture setter, every single one of us. It's your job to build an atmosphere of faith, trusting in God, kicking out insecurity and pride where you're trusting in yourself. Maybe you're in the room and you're a high achiever and the enemy knows how to tempt you. He knows you're gifted. He knows you're talented. He knows that you know how to make money. He knows that you know how to build up a company. Be reminded today that life isn't about your greatness, it's about God's glory. And your greatness is a gift to magnify the Lord. Make it all about him. Maybe you're a parent today, you're a manager, you're, a, you're some sort of ruler in this life. God's given you children to be responsible for, a spouse, relationships. Honor God with the resources he's given you. Be faith-led, be faith-driven, not fear-driven with those resources. Would you stand with me today? Fear cannot find you when you're standing in the house of God, when you're serving at the throne of God. Fear's gonna come and try to find you, but fear won't find you. You'll be like David saying, who shall I fear? Of whom can I be afraid? Just let me be in your house, God. Just let me be in your house. If you today have a hesitant attitude towards Christ, if you go all in with Jesus and you live a life of surrender rather than a negotiation week to week, but if you just surrender to the Lord, if you're afraid that Jesus is just gonna take all your indoor pools away from you, he's gonna take all your Herod in ground, he's just gonna, you're gonna lose everything. If you're walking with that hesitation and that fear, you're looking at things backwards. Look in faith with hope about what God is gonna do through you, about the blessings of the kingdom that are gonna go through your life, that you're going to enjoy being a part of eternally. Flip it around, stop looking through a lens of fear and look through a lens of faith. That's where Christmas cheer comes in. Christmas fear is I'm at odds with God. Christmas cheer is when I'm in awe of God and I'm amazed at what he's doing. I'm thankful today because just like Jeremiah quoted during the time of Israel's rebellion and then exile, there was weeping. We read it today. There's weeping in Ramah. Well, that weeping went full circle and it was fulfilled when the massacre of the innocents occurred that we read the children in Bethlehem were killed and these women are weeping because it's a symbolic moment where no more is Israel walking out of relationship with God, rejecting him and far from him, but someone has come that will end the weeping. Someone has come that will end the rebellion, end the distance, no more exile, but bring Jewish people and Gentile people back to him. I'm so thankful 
for the reconciling work of Jesus today. And I just wanna ask, maybe you're in the room and you're ready to say, all right, I've zoomed out a little bit. I'm seeing the Christmas story. This is how I'm living. I'm living for my greatness and I haven't surrendered to God's glory. If that's you, today my invitation is just surrender. Just say, God, forgive me. I'm all in, receive me. And he will, he will. You'll be crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. You will live no longer, but Christ will live within you. That's salvation. If you're ready to make that, uh, take that step today and make that choice, I just ask that you lift your hand. I wanna remember you as I pray. I'm not gonna embarrass you. If that's you, just raise your hand. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you for the blessings you've given us to steward. And the first and uh, foremost blessing we have, God, our souls. Lord, fill them with life today. We repent of all of our sins, God, of the times we've tried to prop ourselves up against you. This Christmas fear story is nothing new. It's Lucifer against you. It's Cain versus Abel. It's Saul versus David. We read it over and over. But God, we don't want it to be our story of us versus you. So God, we surrender. We don't wanna be your enemies. We wanna be your friends. Thank you for the blood of Jesus that was spilled for us, that Lord, we could be reconciled to you and be adopted into your family. Lord, for each person that would put their faith in you today, I pray that you would fill their life, raise them from spiritual death, God. Lord, that they would glorify you the rest of their lives and for all eternity. Lord, for those that are managers today, God, they're high achievers. Lord, they're culture setters. God, I pray that you would fill them with faith, Lord, not to live their life with fear of loss, fear of reactions, fear of losing uh, this and that, but God, they would live their life thinking of what they might gain in faithfulness and thinking about how they can glorify you in all situations. We love you, Jesus. And as we sing this song, let us magnify your name great in our souls and in this room. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.